This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 14th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. When two companies want to merge, would they be better off located in Europe or the U.S.? The answer has implications for leadership and tech going forward. Sam Bowman directs competition policy at the International Center for Law and Economics. We spoke last week about the costs and benefits and even chilling effects of getting antitrust policy wrong. You're bringing to this a more global perspective. When we think about antitrust, what's the difference between U.S. and Great Britain or other countries when it comes to viewing uh, companies that might be might look suspiciously like a monopoly? Well, in the U.S., the system is very much based on lawsuits and very much based on um, the Department of Justice or the FTC challenging a merger or an acquisition in a court and having to prove its case in the court. In Europe and in the United Kingdom, it's a much more regulatory model where there is a competition agency that reviews mergers and can decide based on its own kind of principles and the rules that have been set for it by a government, whether it thinks that merger is likely to be pro-competitive or anti-competitive. And even though um, it operates within the rule of law and so on, it's a much, much more discretionary approach than the kind of court-based system that exists in the US. And so typically the bar to blocking a merger is lower in the European and UK systems. Okay, so it's more easy for European regulators to block mergers than it is in the US because there's this sort of proactive requirement in the US that somebody issue a challenge. Is that right? That's right. But issuing a challenge can itself be so costly for the merging companies that they often abandon mergers on that basis. Um, It's very, very rare that the federal government loses in court even though it's a, it's a much more um, resource-intensive process for them than it is for, for example, the UK Competition Authority to block a merger. Um, but the process can be so long, drawn out, and expensive. And often mergers are quite timely. Often mergers require the parties to be able to m- mix their products together and integrate their companies there and then. And the delay and the cost and uncertainty of going through court can be so steep they just abandon the merger altogether anyway. And you've got to think that there are other mergers that simply are never even considered with the knowledge that uh, the delay would be significant. Well, absolutely. This is, this is one of the key points that people who look at just the number of mergers that are challenged as a measure of how strongly or how weakly merger law is being upheld ignore all of the mergers, as you say, that don't happen. Um, and you know, to ex- to an extent, that's a sign of the system working well, right? The you know the, the fact that we only arrest you know ten people every year for hijacking an airplane is a sign of the anti-hijacking an airplane law working really well. Um, and um, if it happens once or twice, then that's not necessarily a sign that the law isn't working. Um, but it's difficult to draw conclusions about whether we've actually set the rules correctly. And it's difficult to draw conclusions about what we should do in the future and whether when it comes to changing those rules, whether it's right to try to make them more strict or to try to bring in kind of changes to the burdens of proof, as a lot of people have proposed, to increase the the bar to make it more difficult for mergers to be cleared, especially mergers involving firms with a really, really big share of their markets. Um, so it's quite a difficult um, system. And I have to say, having worked on some mergers um, as a as an advisor, 
it's, there's a lot of guesswork that goes on on the side of both parties. There's a huge amount of guesswork that, because ultimately what you're trying to do is predict the future with a merger. You know, you're, you're ultimately trying to, if you're the competition authority, trying to say, well, is this going to increase competition in the future by lowering prices or getting us more innovation? Or is it going to allow these companies to effectively collude by mixing themselves together? But for the companies, it's, it's the same thing. You know, a lot of mergers are failures. Um, a lot of mergers lead to a, a company that is less than the sum of the parts and, um, lead to expensive, um, integrations. And, you know, they, they kind of hope that they'll revive a flagging company often and they don't. And, um, so there's a huge amount of kind of forecasting that is never really checked and is never really tested, huge amounts of guesswork and the process of merger enforcement, because it's so guesswork heavy can often be kind of somewhat random. You know, it's often quite surprising what mergers are cleared and it's often quite surprising what mergers are challenged. So in, in the United States context, when we see two American companies that might want to get together, is there anything that tells us ex ante whether or not that merger would be more or less competitive or result in a better marketplace? Yeah, the best rule of thumb is that combining substitutes is usually bad and combining complements is usually good. So that corresponds roughly to this idea of a horizontal merger, where you have companies that do roughly the same thing, trying to combine. Um, that is typically, not always, but typically seen as not being a positive step for competition, because it's a little bit like those companies having um, colluded. You know, It's like a formal agreement to, to no longer compete with each other. Whereas when you have companies that do different but complementary things, so for example, a supplier of medical instruments merging with a company that you know markets and sells medical instruments, um, that's typically considered to be a good thing. Um, it allows you to increase efficiencies of scale. It allows you to remove some of the transaction costs that exist between those companies. Um, those are just rules of thumb. There are, I think, lots of examples of substitutes horizontal mergers being good. And there are some examples, I think, of um, not not a huge number, but there are a few examples of mergers of complementary companies not being good. Um, but that's the kind of rule of thumb. And what's controversial today is the is something that it kind of falls in between. Um, this is this is the purchase of small firms by large incumbents. And the question is often whether the small firm being bought is a complement to the incumbent's products or whether it's a competitor or a potential competitor to the firm's products. The one that everybody knows and the one that I'm sure everybody has an opinion about is Facebook Instagram, um, where what appeared to be the purchase of a photo masking app with a social media feed, um, now with hindsight and now knowing what Instagram is today, looks like the purchase of a nascent or potential social media behemoth by the biggest other social media behemoth. And the question is, in cases like that in the future, do we expect that incumbent businesses are trying to buy companies that tomorrow would be their competitors to eliminate that competition? Or are they trying to buy companies that are somewhat complements and that they think that they can kind of scale up and invest in and turn into, you know, the equivalent of what Instagram is today? When you evaluate the incentives uh, for small firms that perhaps one day 
would like to be acquired. And, and for a long time in Silicon Valley, that was a business model unto itself. That is, you create a product of some sort in hopes that a Google or a Facebook or Amazon would want to just buy your company. Um, does that have any impact on the likelihood of a business forming in the first place? Very much so. Um, there's some pretty interesting empirical evidence that looks at both different US states and different global jurisdictions and looks at trends in venture capital investment in startups um, after, after states and countries have enacted either pro-takeover laws or anti-takeover laws, basically laws that make it harder or less hard for these sorts of purchases to um, go through. And we should say this, like all econometric research like this, it's tentative and it, it's prone to change and you know that we don't need to make our minds up fully on this. But this evidence suggests that you get quite a stark 40% reduction in VC investment in the type of firms that are, no, are now finding it more difficult to be acquired when this happens. And it makes sense because apart from being acquired, the other way to make money as an entrepreneur or as a venture capital investor in a small firm in a startup is to go to IPO. Um, and that is a very, very difficult, long process. There are lots of really successful firms that have yet to go to IPO and yet to sort of build themselves into a strong enough company that they think that they can see whether where they'll be sustainably profitable in the future and do so in such a way that investors, kind of public investors, want to invest in them. And at the heart of that is to say, you know, you have to be sure enough that you can beat this incumbent that you'll get there. You know, even when we're talking about a kind of, you know, let's say it's an Instagram and let's say we have some sort of foresight about what Instagram has turned into in our timeline. It's it's by no means clear that Instagram in every timeline will turn into, you know, the Instagram of 2012 will turn into the Instagram of 2021. Um, so even if it's a kind of probabilistic thing where you say, you know, the Instagram of 2012 had a one in 10 or a one in 15 chance of turning into this behemoth, um, it may be really difficult for given all the other risks and all the other potentials for that Instagram to to just fizzle out and not not become what it became. It may be very, very difficult for them to convince investors enough that they're able to kind of get the money to sell out of their company and and sort of reward themselves, the, the entrepreneurs and the, inv the early investors, to do it. And all of that assumes that nothing changes when the acquisition takes place. And I think that that is, this is the kind of concept in economics of the counterfactual. There's a, there's a real, um, I think, mistaken assumption that when a company like Instagram or, you know, Waze is another one, which is a, a mapping app that Google bought and to some extent integrated into Google Maps, the assumption is always that what happened in our timeline would have happened identically had that company been independent. And I think it's pretty easy to see when you look at Instagram that it probably wouldn't have happened. Now, Facebook didn't change a huge amount about the customer-facing um, Instagram products, but it did change a huge amount about the advertiser-facing Instagram product. You know, it integrated it into the ads platform that Facebook has. It integrated it into its enormous um, data data uh, capacity and its enormous ability to personalize ads and so on. And those things, I think, probably made a really big difference. I think a an even better example of um, the counterfactual is Android. Um, you know, Android is one of the most important, but one of the least talked about big tech acquisitions. Um, when it was bought in 2005, it didn't even have a product on the market. And yet, 
having been bought by Google, it was able to sustain a very unusual business model. Um, you know, the, the open source business model combined with um, the integration of apps that Google owns that make Google money and so make it viable for it to invest in this open source approach. And in doing so, Google was able to build a competitor to the iPhone and to iOS and, and you know, the rest is history. But I'm, I think it's really important for us to think about, you know, what might the world have looked like had Google not been able to buy Android? Now, it's possible that Symbian or Palm OS or, or even Android itself could have scaled up and could have, um, you know, filled that gap or maybe Windows Phone and become a, an equally successful challenger to iOS and to the iPhone. But it's very possible that they wouldn't have. And it's very, very possible that Google would have struggled to build its own mobile operating system. Um, and it's very plausible that the counterfactual isn't that you would just have something else in the place of Android. But it's that you would have a much, much weaker mobile ecosystem and one where Apple faces much less competition. And so is able to charge more and do less for consumers. Um, so inherently, as I've, as I've sort of said, all of this involves guesswork and all of this involves sort of trying to predict both our future and futures that didn't happen. But it's really important that we do. And, and to me, it's kind of crucial to understand that there are pro competitive effects. There are kind of effects that are really good for consumers from these deals as well as potentially negative ones. And in the specific case of uh, Google and Android, Google essentially was just giving away that OS to manufacturers of phones saying, please use our OS. We're trying to compete uh, with a, a company that has 40 plus percent market share. And the only way that we can get close to that is to just give this product away. Absolutely. And I mean, that's what's so, I think it's so interesting to think about that business model and to, to try to imagine how that business model could have existed without that unusual combination of Android and Google together. Now, it's possible Google just would have made its own open source app, um, mobile operating system and, you know, just done what it did in our timeline, but without Android. But I think that would have taken longer. And I think that the one thing that is clear from, you know, examples like Amazon's attempt to build the Fire Phone and obviously Windows and Microsoft's attempt to build the Windows Phone is that this is really hard. You know, the, there's a tendency among some economists to kind of dismiss what it is that happens inside businesses, especially these kinds of very innovative businesses and assume that in every counterfactual, it's just, it, you know, it's just a matter of copying some code or it's just a matter of hiring some engineers. When in fact, you know, it requires a lot of knowledge that is very difficult to acquire and that is sort of hidden deep in the minds of a very, very select number of people sometimes. Um, so as I say, it's, it's very, very possible that the counterfactual is either, um, a world where a much worse competitor to iPhone existed, like say Windows Phone or Symbian or something like that, or we just had to wait many, many more years before real competition came into the market from a company like Google. Neither of those worlds is as good as the one that we were in, I think. There are a lot of people who are obviously very concerned about competition in the marketplace. And so many of those people focus their attention strictly on antitrust enforcement. But if you wanted to take a broad view of how do we get the most competitive marketplace so we can wring out all those inefficiencies so that we can get the benefits of dynamism within an economy, what should people be focusing on if we, if we really care about those things? Well, this, this is a really, really important question to me. And I'm constantly trying to 
suggest that we think about competition as being distinct from antitrust. Competition is a thing that happens in an open market when you have new ideas and you have people being rewarded for successful ideas and when, when kind of new innovations are being brought in. Antitrust is like a, is like a, a set of laws that we have that hopefully will enable that to take place, but can only really be negative. So to give an example, um, imagine if we, or to give a, an analogy, if we had a city that wasn't very nice, we would definitely, um, need, well, possibly need to put some people in jail if they were kind of violent criminals and burglars and things like that. We would definitely want to put some of those people in jail, if not all of those people in jail. But there would come a point where we don't want to put any more people in jail. And trying to improve the city by putting more people in jail would become severely counterproductive. It would be, it would be a really bad idea to put people in jail who were not violent criminals and who were not burglars and things like that. And, and that antitrust is a little bit like that sometimes, where people see markets that aren't as competitive as they would like and they assume okay well that means somebody must be breaking the rules in some way or some people must be acting malevolently in a really important way in some way when in fact it's other things um so for example um i think access to talent uh through say open more open immigration um or say through cheaper housing so people can move to areas and kind of set up clusters of innovation in those places is absolutely vital. And most startups that I speak to and most entrepreneurs in tech that I speak to are much more concerned with being able to employ the best people and get the, be get the most successful engineers and the most interesting and innovative people onto their teams than they are about kind of anti-competitive behavior supposed by other companies. Um, you know, access to finance is a huge reason that Europe is so far behind, um, the US because in the US, it's much, much easier for kind of large institutional investors to invest through venture capitalists in startups. So there's much, much more money for startups on the table than in the UK or the US or the European Union, where there are much stricter rules about how that kind of money can be invested. You know, I'm talking about pension funds and things like that. And so it's much, much more difficult to get funded. And all of those things are about competition because all of those things determine how many new companies can come into the market and how many new experiments really can be can take place in the market and ultimately you know how many new challenges there are to the apples and googles and facebooks of this world in in the coming years but none of them really have to do with antitrust the one area where i would say that there is an important distinction and this is where kind of recent proposals in the united states make me a little bit worried is in the european union there's a a, a standard called abusive dominance which basically says a company that has grown large and successful through no through no wrongdoing, it's it hasn't prevented its its rivals from competing. It hasn't done anything to undercut them. It's just got the best product. Still has restrictions and rules about how it can behave in terms of things like pricing and in terms of things like um, how it treats its it, how how it treats suppliers and things like that. Um, it basically says that once you get to a certain size, even if you've done that totally fairly. And reasonably, you become kind of semi-regulated in this new way. Whereas in the US, you don't have that principle. In the US, the principle is if you have fairly and legally acquired even a monopoly, you can do with that monopoly what you want, as long as it's not preventing other firms from undercutting you and competing. And to me, that's a much, much better approach because it says there really is no limit to success in the US. And there really is no um, kind of kick-in point where the laws start to work, start, starts to work against you 
if you're acting otherwise lawfully in the US. Whereas in Europe, that's not the case. And a lot of the proposals that are coming forward in the Senate and in the House in the US right now try to emulate that European approach, um, which now I don't think that that's the only reason that Europe is a laggard when it comes to tech, but I do think it's part of the reason. And so I fear that this, to, to kind of go back to this analogy, fear that a lot of people um, in the United States, in, in government and, and in politics, are sort of not interested in looking at things like you know, liberalizing zoning or making immigration for highly skilled people easier um, and, and doing those things to allow kind of a bottom-up growth of competition and startups and instead are kind of looking to this, well, we need to put more companies in jail or we need to put more to punish more companies because clearly something isn't working and this is the main tool that's easy for us. Sam Bowman directs competition policy at the International Center for Law and Economics. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.